The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now in these studies, at long last, we have come to the announcement that gives us to see through to the end of the wrath of God. We have seen judgment following judgment in increasing tempo, each judgment more frightful than the former, until our hearts would stop were it not for the fact that we know that we are protected and covered by the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and freed from any possibility of facing this terrible doom which awaits those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio ministry which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Beginning of the End, as we conclude our studies in the book of Revelation. John Wesley often sent out new preachers with this exhortation, Preach first the holiness of God. Few people today truly comprehend the terrible depths of human sin, God's awesome holiness and purity, and the fierce wrath that He will pour out upon the ungodly, wicked, and disobedient. How can we escape the approaching wrath of God? Let's find out as today we look at selected verses from Revelation 15 and 16. Here once again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Beginning of the End. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto Thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that as thy word goes forth, that it may be in the power of the Spirit, and that blessing may come to the hearts of thy people. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now this is my own translation of this first part of the 15th chapter. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven messengers having seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a glassy sea mingled with fire, and them that come off victorious from the wild beast and from his image, and from the number of his name, standing upon the glassy sea, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the bond slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Because thou alone art holy. For all the nations shall come and worship in thy presence. For thy righteous sentences have been made manifest. The judgments which attended the opening of the seven seals 
were followed by those judgments brought in with the sound of the seven trumpets. The climax is now reached with the seven bowls of God's wrath, and mercifully we are told before we even read them that they are the last of the judgments. In them the wrath of God is finished. Now it's not to be supposed, as some have attempted to show, that this verse teaches that punishment is not to be eternal for the unbelievers. It remains merely to point out that the wrath of God, which is completed at this point, is that wrath which is to fall upon the nations of the earth in the great tribulation. The wrath which was prepared for the devil and his messengers, which Christ announced in Matthew 25, 41, that wrath is the lake of fire, which does not receive its first inhabitant until the end of this judgment period, at which time we shall see the Antichrist and the unholy spirit, the beast and the false prophet, cast therein. Now, the present vision is one which takes us on to the end of the 19th chapter of Revelation. For although the seven bowls of wrath are announced here in the 15th chapter, they are not poured out until the 16th chapter. Then, when this is completed, one of the messengers talks to John about some of the details of the vision which he has seen. And the 17th to the 19th chapters are concerned with these details, the final consummation of rebellion against God and the final divine dealing with it. We can be exceedingly humble and happy that the Lord has seen fit to tell us that we shall be kept from this terrible hour. For in Revelation 3.10, he tells us that the believers will be removed from this earth before the terrible judgments that are to end God's dealings with it. Although God will have others of his chosen ones to be his instruments during this dread period, as we have already seen. And then finally, chapter 20 takes us from the scene of earth's judgments into the scene of eternal judgment. And the remaining chapters describe the happiness and joy and felicity of heaven. So from our present vantage point in the 15th chapter, we can see the beginning of the end of man's sin and the last of the plagues sent by God. John has already recorded two signs, that of the woman clothed with the sun and that of the great red dragon. The first had to do with Israel, the second with Satan. This third sign, therefore, is called another sign. Oh, it's so wonderful that John calls it great and marvelous. We may well wonder if this is not the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, when Christ in Matthew 24:30 said, when they see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. If it is, they would have good reason to wail. Zephaniah writes of this day, Wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until that day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour out on them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Zephaniah 3, verse 8. And all God's anger is here poured out. The seven messengers are seen in heaven, having the seven last plagues. The idea of finality is uppermost. In the pouring out of these bowls of judgment, the wrath of God is finished, comes to its final end against the sin of the earth. But as in all of the visions of great judgment, the Holy Spirit is very careful to give a view of the safety of his own people. Before the messengers are permitted to go forth from the temple with the bowls of wrath, 
the movement of events is arrested and the scene is shifted to the presence of God where the righteous are seen in worship and victory, safe from the terrible wrath that is now to be poured out. After the four horsemen of chapter 6 had ridden forth under the first of the seal judgments, the first of the martyr victims of the ruthless power of Antichrist are seen to be safely in heaven, where they were to await their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were. This we saw in chapter 6. And then the fury of the Antichrist is intensified, and the 144,000 are sealed for safety. And the Lord gives us a vision of them at rest forever, with the Lamb in the midst of the throne, feeding them and wiping all tears from their eyes. This we saw in the seventh chapter. Now in the early history of the people of God, way back at the time of Moses and the children of Israel, they were led out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, in which their enemies were destroyed. The people, victorious by the power of God, sang with Moses the great song of victory. We read it in Exodus 15. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he is become my salvation. Now, in the tribulation period, the people of God are kept safely through the sea of persecution and martyr death while their Pharaoh, the Antichrist, is destroyed behind them. They come victoriously to the safe shore of eternity and sing the song of redemption after the seven last plagues, even as Moses and the people sang it after the ten first plagues. Both of these numbers have spiritual significance, seven representing divine perfection and finality, and ten standing for numerical perfection. The two series of events, one in the book of Exodus, the other here in the book of Revelation, both ending in triumph for God's people, call forth worship and praise unto him who deals so bountifully in his great grace. And it speaks of them as standing before the glassy sea. And this glassy sea recalls, of course, the sea of glass like unto crystal before which the four and twenty elders sat, which we discussed in chapter 4 and verse 6. There are many commentators who have noted the similarity between the two. And then speaking of the dissimilarity, one says, if it is the same, it has become ominously commingled now. For there it was like unto crystal in clearness, but here it is mingled with fire. The difference is indeed striking and can teach us much. We saw in chapter 4 that the sea was like the laver, the wash basin in the earthly temple which in Solomon's temple was called a sea. It was the place in the order of the earthly temple where the priests cleansed themselves before entering into the holy places. We pointed out that the sea was now turned to crystal as a symbol of the fact that the days for the necessity of cleansing were over forever. Never again would there be sin to confess. God's people will be free from its taint forever. The old nature at this point in God's dealings has been removed, and with the removal of the fountain of sin, which put forth the bitterness of sin, the whole stream is dried up, and it will never again be necessary to seek forgiveness. The laver was the symbol of the word by which we are cleansed. Sin, the fountain, is removed by the work of Christ at the cross, but sins, the flow, are dealt with by the word of his faithfulness. 
Peter had been cleansed by the word about the death of the Lord and needed no further cleansing save that which removed the defilement from his daily walk in the midst of the world. This is why Jesus refused to wash Peter's head and hands, though insisting that the feet must be cleansed. Now in our age, this is God's method of maintaining our fellowship with himself. And so, when the believers of the church period are removed at the beginning of the tribulation period, their labor is seen as a sea of crystal. Some of them may have suffered martyrdom, but the maintenance of their fellowship was by the word alone. And now here in our study in Revelation, we're in the tribulation period, and the Lord has seen fit to demand for his honor and glory that they maintain their fellowship at the price of their sufferings. Their labor is crystal mingled with fire. In the time immediately preceding the overthrow of the Antichrist and his power, there will be a sore trial of faith. Peter writes of the symbols of fire in this connection, for in his epistle in chapter 1 and verse 7 he says, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now in sea mingled with fire, we see that the Lord recognizes these sufferings and commemorates the faithfulness of this martyr group in this beautiful way. It would seem that this company of martyrs is kept distinct from all other groups of believers spoken of in the book of Revelation, as they are the ones who have come off victorious in the conflict with the devilish trinity of Satan, the dragon, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. Thus we have the devil, the antichrist, and the unholy spirit, Satan's counterfeit of the trinity. Now this group of believers described here is seen to be standing upon the sea of glass mingled with fire. The preposition in Greek may be translated by, upon, or over. They are standing by, standing upon, standing over. At all events, their labors are done, and they are now seen in full praise and worship. They have the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Now, this does not mean that they sang the same words which Moses and the children of Israel sang when they stood on the victory side of the Red Sea. The words of this song are given to us, and they can be sung by this group irrespective of their race and background. We call attention to this because some commentators have sought to teach that this group were only Jewish saints of the tribulation period because they sang the song of Moses, which was a song sung under the law. But as a matter of fact, the song of Moses was sung before the giving of the law. But the question has no point here because the words of the song are given to us. To sing the song of Moses and the Lamb means to sing the song of physical deliverance and spiritual redemption. Great and marvelous, they sing, great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Because thou alone art holy. For all the nations shall come and worship in thy presence. For thy righteous sentences have been made manifest. As Moses and the children of Israel were drawn out to praise because of the works of God displayed in their behalf, so these saints are drawn to praise because of the marvels which God works in their behalf. The prophet Micah, writing of these days, says, The land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein, 
for the fruit of their doings. Feed the people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. And the Hebrew is, According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him new marvels. The nations shall see and be confounded. At all of their might they shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid because of the Lord our God, and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Now here is a prophecy in Micah of new marvels, which the Lord is going to perform in behalf of his people Israel. In Egypt, there was a marvel of grace in passing over the blood-stained houses of his people. There was a marvel of power in opening a way through the Red Sea. There was a marvel of judgment in destroying the pursuing Egyptians in the sea. There was a marvel of guidance in supplying the cloud and the fire to lead the people by day and by night. There was a marvel of goodness in giving them manna and quail for their daily food. There was a marvel of condescension in pitching his tabernacle to dwell among them. There was a marvel of patience in enduring their murmurings and their rebellion. There was a marvel of faithfulness in the constant remembrance of his covenant. And yet God says that he's going to show his people new marvels. What will they be? Oh, how infinite is our God. Jeremiah tells us that the works of the Lord on behalf of his people will be so great that the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And, says God, I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. I've quoted from Jeremiah 16. Now these new marvels of grace and deliverance are hidden from our eyes, yet they are certain. Micah says that the sight of these wonders will confound the nations at the sight of God's people. They will be astounded at the work of God. Our passage in Revelation teaches that all of the nations shall be brought to bow in the presence of the Lord as a result of these marvels. His righteous judgments are manifest, and all shall see God in his workings in behalf of his people. Now the different ancient manuscripts of the New Testament have three different readings for one of the phrases we are studying. The text from which our authorized version was made names the Lord as the King of the Saints. The revision and most commentators take the reading which describes him as the King of the Nations. A.T. Robertson, one of the greatest Greek scholars of the past generation, holds to the King of the Ages, corresponding to Jeremiah, where God is called the living God and an everlasting King, and to Timothy, where he is called the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God. Now, we may be sure that one of the last two is correct. The context would justify his being called king of the nations or king of the ages. And here he is announcing the final judgments upon the nations and is showing himself to be the Lord of eternity. Either, therefore, is acceptable in place of the authorized rendering. And now that the saints, victorious in their struggle with the enemy, are seen to have overcome the Antichrist and to be safely in glory, 
the seven messengers are allowed to proceed to the fulfilling of their mandate. They go forth from the inner temple of heaven, that is, from the very presence of God, to pour out the bowls of wrath with the last plagues that are to come upon the nations. And once more it should be observed, the judgment of God proceeds from the very heart of his holiness. Time and again we have seen that judgment is based on the righteousness displayed at the cross. The inner temple which is mentioned here was the holy of holies in the earthly tabernacle, the place in which the ark with its mercy seat received the drops of blood in the propitiation on the day of atonement. In the heavenly temple, the inner temple is the very presence of God himself. Judgment proceeds, therefore, from all that God reveals himself to be, the holy and righteous one. The vision that John saw under the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verse 19, is here expanded to its fullness. We are about to see further details of the judgment that was there announced. The four living creatures have been considered in detail when we studied their first appearance. It was they who opened the seals and made it possible for John to see the first of the great judgments that are coming upon the earth. One from among their number now hands the seven bowls of wrath to the seven messengers. Our King James Version renders this word as though the vessel were some sort of a bottle. It is most certainly the common Greek word for a rather flat bowl, almost a saucer, in which incense was carried into the temple. It's the same vessel as that which was carried by the living creatures and the four and twenty elders in their worship before the Lamb. The Antichrist and the nations would not bring the censers of worship with their worship, and therefore they must have these censers filled with the wrath of God. It is one more illustration of the word which must ring in every sinner's heart. If you will not have him as your savior, you must have him as your judge. From the glory and power of God came a smoke filling the inner temple. Smoke is frequently a symbol of the presence of the Lord in his holiness. When he came down to give the law, Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. We read in Exodus 19 and 18. Before Isaiah was cleansed from his sin, he saw the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, his train filling the temple, with the attendant seraphim veiling their faces and their feet, crying one to another of the holiness of the Lord of hosts. And we read, the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. When Aaron and his successors offered the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the Lord ordered that he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, so that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, so that he die not. How all of this speaks of the majesty and the holiness of our God. But though Aaron could not approach the mercy seat without hiding it with the smoke of the incense, and though we can never come to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ, it should be noted that not even the redeemed children of God are permitted to enter into the inner temple during the pouring out of the seven bowls containing the last plagues, the fullness of the wrath of God. What insight we should have here of the holiness of God. And may we not be allowed to think that behind this hiding smoke, the heart of God is weeping even as the Lord Jesus wept over Jerusalem, as he acknowledged that all the efforts of his mercy had been in vain, and that the city refused all of his offers of pardon and love. 
and as we shall be in heaven at that moment, yet outside of the presence of God, shall we not know that he suffers alone for the horror of the sin that separates men from himself and forces him to send them away to outer darkness forever? Oh, take off thy shoes from off thy feet. Thou art standing on holy ground. The voice that now speaks is the voice of God himself. No angelic messenger is in his presence in this awful instant. The messengers bearing the bowls stand outside. The living creatures have there handed them the bowls of wrath. The smoke excludes all, yes, all, from the divine presence. And then God, whose patience has lasted throughout the centuries, comes to the final end. He speaks. The great voice from the inner temple is the voice of the long-offended God. The messengers receive his direct orders. Go forth and pour out the seven bowls of wrath into the earth. The end of all earth judgment has come. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding fine, and the last of the grist is now to go through. The machinery of judgment has been set in motion, and the Creator himself has said that it shall not be arrested until the last plagues of his wrath are finished. And we pray thee, our God and Father, that we may consider this scene with awe and bow before thy majesty and come to thee while it is yet day to believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away our sin, that we may not have to stand before thee in judgment, but only in mercy. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Great and marvelous are the deeds of the Lord God Almighty, and just and true are His ways. We are to fear God and bring glory to His name now and for all eternity. We hope you've benefited from today's message entitled, The Beginning of the End. Listen to additional teaching by Dr. Barnhouse via the Internet. Visit us at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free. 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Beginning of the End, or simply request message number RV-40. We would also like to make available to you a free CD message called, Jesus is Lord, by the great British theologian and pastor, Dr. John R. W. Stott. Dr. Stott preached this powerful message at one of our first Philadelphia conferences on Reformed Theology, and it is our pleasure to offer it to you free of charge. Ask for your free CD copy of Jesus is Lord when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. We also produce the radio broadcast, The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teachings of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Every Last Word, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, visit our website, AllianceNet.org. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of listeners like you. For more information or to make a contribution to help further our work, contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. That's 1-800-488-1888. Write Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.